This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music Podcast. Today, I speak with Amber Clifford Napoleon, the author of Queerness and Heavy Metal Music, Metal Bent. Our conversation examines the history of heavy metal, how fans consume and identify with the music, and how gender and sexuality operate within heavy metal. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Well, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, how this book came about. Well, I'm an associate professor of anthropology at UCM. It's University of Central Missouri, so right in the middle of the state almost. And and my project really got its start a long time ago. I'm a metalhead. Metal has been sort of the soundtrack for me since I was a really young kid. And when I did my Ph.D., uh, I was working on jazz, actually, Kansas City jazz for my Ph.D., but I was always keeping these sort of side notes and little scraps of this and that, thinking that someday I would write about metal someday, someday. And it was always sort of this rainbow in the sky. Someday I'm going to write about metal. But when I got done with my dissertation, I was sort of in that, that post-dissertation haze where you got to find something to do. And I, I decided to start sort of unpacking the, the bits and pieces of sort of metal scholarship that I had been playing with. And, and that ended up being what I... You know, dedicated the next eight years to actually was was this project of heavy metal something that really uh, is becoming my life's work pretty quickly. So, so um, maybe talk a little bit method- methodologically. What's it like to study something that you've been a fan like all your life of? Like, what do you what do you have to kind of do to kind of be a, an academic and still study it? You know, I I think it's I think it sounds maybe. To, especially to people who, who don't do autoethnographic work, I think it probably sounds easier than it really is because on the one hand, there's a lot of sort of rapport building uh, that you have to do. You know, I'm a, I'm a cultural anthropologist by training and by trade. Uh, and so I, I think and talk and teach a lot about this idea of, of building rapport, about building relationships with interlocutors and about having exchanges of ideas and information and, and typically building rapport takes a lot of time. But if you're an insider in the culture that you're talking about, then there's a lot of that language, there's a lot of that background, there's a lot of shared experience uh, that you already bring in. So a lot of this sort of formative bridge building, uh, that tertiary stuff that you have to do in, in ethnography, you don't have to worry about as much. Uh, the problem is that that tertiary level is is where you do a lot of heavy lifting, trying to figure out relationships between people and things and sounds and spaces and and the lingo. And if you're already an insider, it's really, really simple to take a lot of that for granted. Uh, it's really simple to 
oversimplify something, it's really simple to um, sort of just assume that everybody knows what you mean when you really, in ethnography, can assume no such thing ever. Uh, the other tricky thing about, I think, not just heavy metal in particular, but something like this, you know, a subculture that's understood so differently from the inside than the outside, and a subculture that's really international in size and scope, yet, yet very sort of communal and scene-based. Uh, I think the other thing about that is that when you decide to be the ethnographer of that which you are a part, uh, that you immediately start to set yourself outside your own scene. And so in a way, it's um, can be fairly isolating. I mean, it's very strange to have people that you've known for a long time, you're suddenly asking them 42 questions about gender and heavy metal, and, and they want to know what on earth you're doing because we were supposed to be here for a beer. And so... You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of slippage there that you really have to attend to, and it can get, I think, really tricky. So you have to do, at least I had to do, a lot of very self-reflexive checking in. I was doing a lot, doing a lot of writing back to myself. Uh, I was doing a lot of journaling about interviews after they were done, so that I could sort of separate my academic view of it and and really critique myself. Uh, so that I could attend to the things that I was taking for granted and the things that I wasn't unpacking as well as I would if it was a subject I didn't know so passionately. So, you know, on the one hand, it's exciting and fun because you're in it. But on the other hand, uh, I really think that in the end, it's it's much more, because it's so personal, I think the work is is harder. It's more challenging. and And if you don't sort of constantly rein yourself in, uh, it's really easy, I think, for the work to go badly. So, well, One thing that, that I'm finding as I've been thinking more about popular music is that so much of the, the, the scholarship on it has really been dominated by historians, literary critics, and ethnomusicologists. And um, what I like about ethnographies is they, they kind of almost have like almost a different subject matter, and your book certainly does. How would you maybe describe... How, what an anthropologist brings to the study of popular music that's maybe different from some other people who study popular music? You know, I, w- I was at an NEH seminar a few years ago, and it was a mix of musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and anthropologists. Uh, and we were all talking about music and, and popular music and global music. And, and that particular topic came up a lot, sort of, uh, because it was very clear that we all saw it very differently. Um, we were trying to figure out what that big difference was because the truth is we were arguing a lot amongst ourselves uh, about approach. And I, I think for anthropologists that uh, even though the sort of sonic, the sound part um, is important, I think that for anthropologists, the focus is really, you know, there's some, in the anthropology of popular music, there's some really core anthropology going on. It's about social interaction. It's about human behavior. It's about cultural systems and constructions. So we're more likely, I think, as anthropologists to foreground those things and background things like, uh, you know, time and notation or, uh, you know, things like actual performance or the sonics of an actual performance. Where I think, I like to think of these things almost in terms of seeing a show. I think if you were at a concert, anthropologists are much more likely to be engaged in watching the people at the show and what they're doing than they are to be sort of hyper-focused on the performance itself. Because I think we're much more interested in in that sort of 
um, those cultural moments, you know, those, those snapshots of, of human interaction and behavior where it's revolving around things like identity and difference and belief uh, and sort of systems and patterns, you know, that's really what we're, I think, more interested in. My, my ethnomusicologist friends might argue with me there, but um, I, I think there's, there's a key difference there. I think that ethnomusicology, while it's interested in, in social behavior, certainly I think tends to foreground the music itself uh, a bit more than anthropologists of popular music do. Well, then let, let's jump into really the two key terms that you're working with. Um, sure. and, and they're very difficult, I think, to define. Um, but you talk a lot about queerscape, queerscapes and a lot about heavy, heavy metal music. And so right. how would you define those things, you know, with a focus on sort of audiences, systems, patterns, instead of maybe some other ways that those things have been defined? Okay. Well, queerscape is one that I actually borrowed from architecture. Uh, I have a really passionate interest in the study of space and place and how those things work, um, how space is used on the ground. Uh, and so queerscape is, is a term that I borrowed from architecture because I didn't feel like other words sort of get tossed around when we're talking about subcultures. I didn't feel like they worked. You know, I, I, things like calling something a community, I'm not even really comfortable with subculture. I keep saying it, but I'm not entirely comfortable with it because I think that when you're talking about something like heavy metal, it's both international and local. It's both dynamically enormous and infinitely small. And some sort of general term like communal, I don't think quite does that. Uh, and at the same time, I was, I was dealing with, obviously, gender and sexuality and how that works in heavy metal and seeing sort of what gets played as the metal subculture and what gets played as the non-normative sexual subcultures and where they overlapped. And I wasn't finding a good way or a good term or really even sort of a good lens, really, to think about where that overlap hit. And so I decided to delve into architecture. Uh, Queerscape um, is by a particular architecture scholar, Gordon Brett Ingram, uh, who wrote a lot about what he started writing about was public sex in public places, queer, especially gay men's sex in public places. Uh, and he was talking about sort of the architecture of public sex, playing on some other sort of uh, sex-positive work like Pat Khalifa's and some others. Um, I sort of adopted it in a way that some other people like Helen Leung and some others have taken it um, as a way to look at queerscape and understand uh, the what I've been calling the architecture of an identity uh, and how that works, because I don't think we develop an identity in a vacuum. I think we do that as a series of social interactions, that our, our identity comes from a lifetime of person-to-person behavior and experience. And so thinking then of, of queerness as queerscape and giving that sort of architectural enclosure to the way that queer metal fans see themselves and see each other and see sort of what I'm going to say are straight metal fans, that all of that with that sort of queerscape background, I think it gave it the right, for lack of a better phrase, the right bones, um, that, it, that it seemed to give it some some structure that other approaches just weren't lending, I think, in the right way. Uh, the other term that you asked about was heavy metal. Uh, so... Heavy metal is, I think heavy metal is a fascinating term in that almost everybody thinks that they know what that means. And 
Uh, if you ask people inside heavy metal what that means, they'll tell you that they don't necessarily always agree. Um, I'm actually in the middle of a, a huge Facebook argument about that right now, uh, about who is metal and who is not metal, because the truth is that's a, a major discussion in the metal world, who is and who isn't, who's in and who's out. Um, heavy metal is, first and foremost, I would say, a genre of music that gets its start in the late 1960s. Uh, it's a reaction to a few things. First of all, it's a reaction to sort of the, uh, the late Vietnam era folk music movement. It's very much a reaction to that. It's, uh, it comes from industrial cities uh, in Western Europe and in the United States, New York, Detroit, uh, Birmingham in the north of England. So there's a lot of reflection of sort of industrial working class life in heavy metal that was antithesis to the sort of Woodstock flower power ethos, if you will. Uh, heavy metal sort of comes out of those industrial cities in the 60s and 70s, uh, and it's marked by some particular sounds. Uh, early heavy metal especially was known for a tritone, which also gets called the devil's note. Uh, it's known for low, sort of bass, low bottom end is what we say. Uh, and then virtuosic performance. Uh, and not everybody thinks about heavy metal and virtuosic performance, but typically, even if you don't know a heavy metal, if I say something like Eddie Van Halen, uh, then things get a little more crystal because in heavy metal, we really are talking about the idea of, you know, think about Spinal Tap and, and the drum solo so long that people leave the stage, right? I mean, we, we are talking about on some level this idea of, of virtuosic uh, playing or virtuosic drumming or in case of singers like Rob Halford, virtuosic singing the, uh, that you are talking about some superlatives in terms of performance. Uh, since the 60s and 70s, heavy metal has grown at an exponential rate. So at this point, it is international. It's in every language. It's in every country. Um, the sonic things that I just brought up, like virtuosic performance in the tritone, in 2015 are not even really required. Um, even that we've sort of moved past uh, to some extent. But the other big part, I think, of that definition is that beginning in the 60s and 70s and certainly in the 1980s, heavy metal came to mean not just a sound and a musical system, but also a subculture uh, with the idea that you have working class at least in the 80s, predominantly white people, although that's not necessarily the case if you think of heavy metal as international. Um, this idea of you know, the leather and the spikes uh, and the sort of tease, you want to think of, of 80s hair metal, right? The sort of teased Motley Crue poison hairdos. Uh, heavy metal came to be associated uh, with some particular styles. Uh, that has changed as well. Uh, but there is still very much an attachment uh, in people who identify themselves as fans of heavy metal to particular stylistic clues like like the heavy metal T-shirt, like black, uh, like leather, um, that sort of thing. So you can think of it both as a sound and sort of a you know a subcultural style too. So one of the things that the book talks about is when it gets to this issue of style is sort of the role of leather and the history of how leather got incorporated into um, into sort of the heavy metal, um, I don't know, into the heavy metal community. Um, right. So can you maybe share a little bit about of how, how that came to be and how that really sort of brought the, these uh, these two groups together or, or I don't mean bring them together is probably not the right there, but just why 
why the sort of the scenes were mutually reinforcing in some ways. Sure, sure. Well, you know, the sort of leather as a, as a subcultural identity has a very clear history, uh, and heavy metal has a very clear history. But where the two sort of bounce off of each other, I don't think has been discussed very well, which is a shame because they're so, they're so mutual in a lot of ways. Uh, but a, a lot of the sort of, um, what I want to say, crossbreeding, I guess, of, of, of leather and heavy metal, a lot of that comes from that post-World War II industrial movement uh, because you have, I mean, you have people who are, are, you know, Birmingham is known for boiled leather jackets, for instance. So, so you have places where those industries are going on. You have an influx as well of post-World War II single men who, in huge numbers in the United States and in Europe, uh, who find themselves um, disenchanted with the world, right, dealing with sort of a a post-World War II feeling, an affect, uh, who were attracted to things taken directly from World War II, like leather, like motorcycles, because bomber jackets are a World War II material object. Um, Motorcycle riding pants and military motorcycles uh, come from that period of time. So you have all of that going on and all that's going on in largely urban centers. So what was start, what started to be then motorcycle culture, uh, starts to mesh with a sort of, uh, heavy metal industrial culture. And then that blossoms into a piece of heavy metal music. Uh, the other part of that has to do with uh, sort of GLBT leather identity and BDSM and where that got started as well. That's also an outgrowth of this World War II industrial uh, young, now we're talking about predominantly in the early days, young gay men uh, and lesbians in urban areas attracted to leather, attracted to motorcycles uh, because of maybe a World War II experience, certainly attracted to industrialism because you're dealing with the industrial boom of post-World War II. Um, and wherever there were those communities were interacting, heavy metal blossomed in those particular places. Uh, where did heavy metal get the spikes and the leather is really a particular story, though, because if you look at early heavy metal artists like Black Sabbath, you know, Black Sabbath is maybe the classic heavy metal band. And if you look at early photographs of Black Sabbath, you will not see any black leather motorcycle jackets or spiked collars or anything like that. Uh, if you look at early photographs of, of, if you look at sort of 70s, you know, early to mid 70s photographs of, of any of the performers that you would think of as quintessentially heavy metal performers, uh, you're not going to see the, the black leather and the bondage gear. You're not going to see that. That appears to come uh, from Rob Halford, uh, who's the lead singer of Judas Priest, still the lead singer of Judas Priest. Um, and Halford came out in the 1990s as a gay man. Uh, and though he has told sort of different tales, the one thing that is clear is that Judas Priest premiered that particular look, the sort of bondage gear look, uh, that they premiered that after he made a visit to Mr. S. Leather's um, He's, sometimes he says San Francisco, sometimes he says London, but clearly he went to Mr. S. Leathers, bought costumes for the band, went back and put them on, and they premiered um, that sort of leather bondage look that he took from his engagement with the leather community in San Francisco, in London, uh, in New York, 
uh, and then also took from his industrial roots, Judas Priest is a, a North England Birmingham band. Uh, so with Rob Halford, I think you see sort of all those things coming together at a particular moment. But post Rob Halford and Judas Priest, now I remember very clearly metal magazines in the 80s, you'd flip through the pages and there would be mail order sheets where you, the 12 year old, could order your own studded dog collars, right? <laughs> it was everywhere. Uh, so it descends from that particular spot. You know, Rob Halford was kind of the right man at the right time, but it has a, a, a really sort of rooted history in a lot of other groups. Well, one of the things that struck me, and, and, and you spent a lot of time talking about this in the book, is that, you know, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and there was a, a really big heavy metal scene, and yeah. it, it seemed, it, it had its own sort of version of masculinity, that was part yes. of it. And it, and it, and, um, obviously it, it's a very different time than it, it was today, but it didn't seem like it was necessarily a, a place, at least from the outside looking in, it didn't seem like it was a place that was maybe going to be very welcoming to people right. who didn't, who, who weren't sharing either their vision or, or, or outsiders. So how did, um, gays, lesbians, uh, queer identified folk get connected with, heavy metal and, and what were those early relationships like? You know, I, I, I think that it's, it's important to, to think about gay lesbian fans, uh, really any, any queer fans, any non-normative fans as always there. I mean, yeah. they were always there. Um, I think the thing is that heavy metal has such a strong stylistic system and such, such a strong ethos, right? The idea is that the music comes first and that, if you're metal, you're metal till you die. And, and everybody else who's metal is also metal till they die. And so you, you know, you fight for them and they fight for you and it's us against them and them is everybody else. Right. So I think that queer fans, regardless of when they started listening to metal, uh, queer fans felt in heavy metal, uh, a belongingness and a community and a sense of sort of solidarity that they didn't necessarily feel outside of metal. Uh, because, you know, not just the music, but the, the cultural system around heavy metal lends itself to that very much. Uh, I've, I talked to a lot of fans. I did a ton of interviews and talked to a lot of fans. My, the youngest fan I interviewed was 15, uh, and the oldest one was 78. And I was asking a lot of questions about how they got into metal and why they got into metal and what they listened to first and who gave it to them or how they got it or something like that. And, and the stories, regardless of the generation or the country or the ethnicity, the stories all have this very common theme. And the theme was, I heard, you know, X song one day and it made me feel like somebody understood what I was feeling. So there's this, there's this universality about, about the sound and about the ethos that I think gives queer fans this sense that they are safe there uh, without, and, and this is important too, without the necessity that they be, um, I'm going to say overtly queer, although I don't know what that might mean, but, but, but I, I, I think that there is this, you know, I think there's this concept that, that queer heavy metal fans must not be accepted because they're queer after all, but I dare you to go to a heavy metal concert and tell me who's queer and who's not because we're all wearing the same things. We're all doing the same things. So there was this 
It was this ability to blend in with a crowd that didn't blend in, right? That, that you had solidarity in a group of people who stuck out, uh, and they all knew that they stuck out, and they were all okay with that, and they were all okay with whatever that meant. Uh, and you could be a part of that and do all of that uh, without taking risks in a different direction. So, I, you know, across the board when I talk to fans, and even, you know, my 78-year-old fan, what he said was, you know, my, my older brother gave it to me. I had a brother who was older, and he gave it to me, and that was that. Uh, so, you know, in every sense, it was like there's this just, there's this penultimate moment where you hear it, you see it. You, a lot of them describe heavy metal music as very visceral, too. I mean, you want to think about the loudness, the volume, the bass line. Um, it, it is a, a music that's embodied in a lot of ways. And I, and I think that for queer fans, this idea that you have this music that you feel not just on a psychological level and a mental level and an emotional level, but literally a physical level, and that you feel that with all these other people who are feeling the exact same thing as you at that time, that's a very, very powerful thing. I want to pick up something you you kind of... Uh, alluded to, but maybe you could give some examples of it. You mentioned sure. that a lot of the people who you spoke with kind of almost identified this almost like rite of passage where that they would listen to a song and they would finally feel like they were a part of something and connected. Right. Can you maybe identify a few songs that, that maybe came up maybe more than a few times that people said, yeah, it was this song that just it made me feel connected? Sure, sure. Uh, a, a lot of people pick uh, the occasional... It would, you know, it depends on the generation of the person, too. So older fans tended to pick Black Sabbath, which is not surprising. Um, and a lot of fans pick Judas Priest, too. Uh, things like, um, well, you know, there's a Judas Priest song called Hellbent for Leather. Uh, so even though the music video for the song makes it look like it's all about um, motorcycles, uh, the people that I talk to who pick that song is the song that brought them into metal would usually say things to me like, but we know that's not about motorcycles, don't we? Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of identifying, I think, not just with the sound, but with the performance too. Uh, a lot of, a lot of this is genre too, but a lot of fans pick uh, as well some of the more, what we call extreme metal bands. Um, that's, those are heavy metal bands that, that you're not going to hear on the radio. If you have a station that has a metal show or you have a heavy metal station, you're not always going to hear extreme bands. Uh, extreme bands tend to uh, live sort of a different life than mainstream radio, internet play metal bands too. But a lot of queer fans pick up on uh, extreme metal bands like Cradle of Filth, people who use a lot of theatricality uh, and a lot of makeup and a lot of stage show and they're so there's extremity in performance, there's extremity in lyrics, and that the lyrics tend to be about some pretty powerful themes, death, for instance, or, or you know, survival. There's common themes in heavy metal like those. Um, so one particular song that everybody went, that, that's the one, that's the one, that's the one, and not necessarily, but some commonalities in terms of bands that get picked and, and genres that get identified, yeah. Well, another question that, that really came up as I was reading the book is, and this is probably hard to, to figure out, is do you have a sense of sort of like what percentage of heavy metal fans would identify as uh, maybe queer? And then, and conversely, like what percentage of maybe 
uh, people identified as queer listen to heavy metal. Do you have a sense of that? You know, it's really hard to know for for a couple of reasons. First of all, heavy metal is in, in the 21st century, especially especially heavy, heavy metal has become very uh, genre based. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of subgenres of heavy metal. You know, we could talk about death metal and black metal and crust metal, and Norwegian death metal, and so there's, there's all these subdivisions. Um, and the truth is that that while I, you know, while I can't say to you, oh yeah, there's this percentage of heavy metal fans that are queer, because that's really an impossible thing to do. I mean, we're not even sure what percentage of the human population is, but I can tell you that it appears that there are some genres where queer metal fans feel more at home or identify more with the music than others. Uh, for instance, a lot of the questions that I asked my informants were about what, what songs and music they listened to, what bands they liked. And then I was also asking what bands they didn't like so that I could get some idea of, you know, where people were drawing those genre lines. And then I was asking some questions about what performers they thought were homophobic, what performers they avoided at all costs, you know, what, what crowds they think they would be perhaps in the most danger in, right? Uh, so extreme metal attracts a lot of queer fans, uh, and then some other particular genres like death metal, um, industrial metal attracts a lot of queer fans. But interestingly, the heavy metal that I think the mainstream population identifies as metal tends to be the metal that queer fans don't like. <laughs> so, so, for instance, the mainstream, a lot of mainstream reaction to heavy metal is, oh, heavy metal, yeah, that's Slayer, I, I saw them on TV, or... Yeah, heavy metal, that's Metallica, got that. Yeah, queer fans don't like uh, that. Some of those bands are in a genre called thrash metal, which kind of got its start in San Francisco and New York uh, in the 80s. So queer fans don't tend to like thrash. Uh, some of that is because thrash has uh, some uh, homophobic event, events in its history, and that's sort of given it a power, I think, for queer fans. Uh, and then hair metal, which... It kills me. Every time I talk to a straight fan of heavy metal and they hear what I work on, they always say to me, oh, yeah, queer fans, they must love hair metal. Um, and the truth is that queer fans don't like hair metal unless you're my age and that's what you were listening to when you were in middle school. Um, queer fans don't like heavy metal precisely because it's such a, a caricature uh, that it comes off. Uh, almost as mimicry. Uh, and so they, they, queer fans don't tend to like hair metal. So it's interesting that the, the kinds of metal that the mainstream goes, oh, yes, that's heavy metal, are also the things that queer fans look at and go, no, I don't listen to that. Um, as to what percentage of, of queer people listen to heavy metal, yeah, I don't know. Although I can tell you that one of the questions I was asking my fans was, do you have a lot of queer friends and do they listen to metal? And the answer was typically, of course, I have queer friends. Why are you asking me that? Uh, and then the answer to the second one was, no, I'm the only one. <laughs> or, or there would be, oh, yeah, I have lots of queer friends, but only one listens to metal. We go to concerts together. All right. So there was this very clear identification that, yes, there were queer friends. But it was really as though in the interviews and all the other research that I did, it was though even the queer fans were drawing a difference between the metal people and the not metal people. So that it was a lot of, oh yeah, those are my queer fans, my queer friends, but they're not metal. That's not them. You know, I have a metal friend who's also queer and they always put the queer second. Uh, the metal was first. 
So, you know, I think overall the number is probably fairly slim, but the truth is, I think in a mainstream population, the, the number, you know, if you walk into a room and ask how many people in here listen to heavy metal, it's not like half the room's going to put their hand <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've been talking a lot about, I think, masculinity, but you also focus a lot on how gender operates. And you talk a little bit, or quite a bit, actually, about Joan Jett and some other things. Um, so what are the things that's... That some of the themes that came out related to gender that, that you learned? Well, I think the first thing is that gender in heavy metal gets woefully oversimplified. I think it's much more complex than it appears to be, certainly to the outside, and quite frankly, than it appears to be to a lot of other people who work on heavy metal. I, I think that gender gets boiled down to a dichotomy, and that's something that folks like me who've done anthropology and gender for a long time, the dichotomy is something we left by the side of the road a long time ago. So I think that it's woefully oversimplified. And, and I think that that has a lot to do with masculinity. I really do. I mean, one of my big interests really in all my work, but certainly in my heavy metal work is, is about dealing with this idea of masculinity and understanding that uh, masculinity is, Floating at best, uh, and that it's not—it's not necessarily um, present in the way that we seem to talk about it, the way we seem to address it. I mean, we talk about masculinity like it's a thing we can go buy at the store and drink a bottle of, and and it's just not. And, and heavy metal is is terribly guilty of that. I mean, it's terribly guilty of talking about masculinity like that's the goal of heavy metal. It's terribly um, focused on this idea of not just masculinity, but hyper-masculinity, extra-masculine, extra this, extra that. Uh, I think that's especially true, quite frankly, of the mainstream understanding of heavy metal. I mean, if we go back again to you know, hair bands and thrash bands, Metallica and Twisted Sister, right? What do we see? We see one hyper-masculine Metallica, and then we see what appears to be just a mockery of masculinity, right? Like it's just a joke. Um, and heavy metal is much more diverse than that. And I think that um, certainly, you know, for heavy metal fans, whether the mainstream understands heavy metal or not really is not important to heavy metal folks. Uh, but I think that heavy metal fans sometimes allow that dichotomy to stand uh, rather than really unpack it. Um, and heavy metal music studies, which is just sort of getting off the ground, has a lot of people who are interested in sort of breaking that down. So, you know, you mentioned Joan Jett. What I'm particularly interested in is masculinity as played on Joan Jett uh, and how interesting it is that in heavy metal, Joan Jett is seen as a godmother of heavy metal. She is. Although if you ask people outside of Joan Jett as metal, they'll tell you no. If you ask people inside metal, they'll tell you yes. Why? Because she's so tough. Right, because she's because she's in leather, because her guitar is low, because man, she can hit the guitar line. She can really play, and she doesn't take any shit off anybody. Right, so she's got to be metal, and and that that stuff, though, all those masculinist terms. Right, she's tough and she's hard, and she doesn't take anything, and all that stuff placed on Joan Jett, who, by the way, I've seen live a few times, is a tiny woman. Right. Um, but bigger than life and reputation, I, I think that that has everything to do with our understanding of gender and how that plays. And for heavy metal fans who are in, by my mind, a largely androgynous costume, I mean, jeans and a black T-shirt does not gender very much. 
Um, I think there's a lot of playing with gender and heavy metal on the part of fans and on the part of performers that gets lost behind this sort of theater curtain of masculinity. And it really is just a show. I mean, the masculinity is just a show. Well, um, I think you, you touched on it kind of maybe towards the end of the book is how there's been a number of um, bands that have uh, trans people in them. And yeah. how that's kind of, I don't want to say it's a trend, but something that you're seeing more of. So how is, how is that group sort of integrating within heavy metal? Uh, you know, heavy metal's reaction to trans performers coming out as trans or really queer performers of any stripe coming out. And the heavy metal reaction tends to be, so what can they play? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, it's interesting for me, not just as a fan from the inside looking at the reaction, but also as a scholar trying to look from outside heavy metal at how it reacts. The reaction is a non-reaction. I mean, the answer is, okay, fine, but can they growl? Okay, fine, but can they play? Okay, fine, but now that they've come out, is the next album going to be worse than the last one because the last one was really good and I'm going to be really disappointed if the next one sucks, right? So there's not a whole lot of deep investment on the part of most metal fans, queer or not. Um, You know, I, I write some in the book about Marissa Martinez, for instance, and Mina Caputo and some others, um, who've come out recently uh, as trans in heavy metal, they're performers. Um, and the reaction is really on the part of metal, it's sort of an epic, okay, sure, but can you play? Um, both of them have been on the covers of the major heavy metal magazines in the United States uh, to an epic, all right, so what? Uh, and there's just not, uh, there's a non-reaction. Um, And what's interesting is that most people outside heavy metal expect heavy metal to react with vitriol. I think that outside heavy metal, the reaction is, oh, there's going to be, you know, so-and-so is a heavy metal singer and coming out as trans. Well, heavy metal is going to explode. People are going to attack. There's going to be fire bombings and Nazis. What are we going to do? And and that's just not going to happen because heavy metal fans, heavy metal music is accustomed to playing with every margin. That is a system that's accustomed to, I mean, heavy metal is based on breaking the rules, right? Break, I mean, Judas Priest's biggest song is breaking the law, breaking the law. We're accustomed to breaking the rules. So if somebody says, yeah, I'm going to break the rules and switch sexes, um, then I think heavy metal's reaction in general is like, okay, fine. Uh, just, just in November, uh, the lead singer of a band called Census Fail, which is a sort of a hardcore band, um, came out as queer, actually, uh, in a podcast. Uh, and then he wrote a letter to his fans on the Internet, uh, and then he gave a brief interview to Revolver this last month. Uh, and they asked him if he could define queer, and he said, no, not really. I'm not gay. I'm not bi. I'm not trans. I'm queer. I'm not sure what that means, but um, that's that's what I am. And what everybody's reaction to the revolver interview has been sort of, yeah, we knew that because we read it in November. Right. <laughs> so I, I think as long as fans, um, you know, I think as, as long as fans understand that that's part of metal. And I think if you're in metal, then you do, then, you know, the reaction is really not there. Now are the, is there, yeah, you know, is there hate and heavy metal 
Of course there is. To kind of paraphrase it, my set of the conference once, there's hate at 7-Eleven, right? I mean, there's hateful people everywhere. Are there people in heavy metal who say terrible, threatening things about trans performers? Of course. Of course there are. Just like there are people in heavy metal who are racist and sexist um, and, you know, anti-Semitic. All of those things are true. But all of those things are true in any other genre of music as well, right? We could have that same conversation about rap, about hip-hop, about country music, about top 40 pop. Uh, So I think the expectation that heavy metal would just implode is, um, I think, a pretty good signpost for the fact that heavy metal is still, even though it's enormous in size and scope, is still not just misunderstood, but really doesn't maybe want to be understood entirely, too. One of the great things that I learned while reading your book was just how how you saw sort of this confluence between uh, heavy metal fans and queer, queer queer identified people around sort of um, being non normative together. And one thing yeah. that struck me is I was reading this book as the sort of recent Supreme Court decision just came down um, legalizing gay marriage, and and I was having this sort of almost um, I don't know, cognitive dissonance as I was reading about sort of this attraction to non-normative behaviors to the the gay litigation strategy, which is all about sort of making gay marriage, um, you know, normal. And so I don't know what, I know this is a little outside of the scope of your book, but what are, what are some of your responses uh, to, to that decision and sort of the, the, this wide gulf between maybe queer fans of heavy metal, what they're looking for in that music versus this litigation strategy? You know, I, I think that cognitive dissonance probably hits the nail on the head for a lot of us in the community, too, where where you spend sort of, you know, a lifetime identifying as an outsider, uh, and then you have a legal strategy that's really designed to put you in, um, is is sort of difficult to manage, I think, any time. Uh, as, as to sort of how heavy metal and queer fans of heavy metal might approach that, um, you know... It's difficult to say because a lot of queer fans, not just a lot of queer fans, a lot of metal fans don't consider themselves very political uh, and they don't, uh, they think of politics as a little too straight up mainstream and the work of the man. So there's not necessarily among all fans sort of active political engagement. And I, I think that's maybe especially true in the United States and Western Europe because in other parts of the world where your political engagement is your ethnicity or your class, then I think that's probably not as true. Um, with that said, you know, the number of fans that I talked to, some of them were hoping, you know, I did ask occasional questions about this. Some of them were hoping that marriage would be legal. Some of them were saying even if it were legal, I wouldn't do it. Um, it, it kind of goes across the board. And I, I think that that's just a function of, of, queer fans and metal being sort of a microcosm of uh, the queer community too. You know, just because they listen to metal doesn't mean that they're not still part of the queer community, whatever that might mean in the 21st century. I got to tell you just on a personal note, um, I got married in 2005 uh, illegally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, and I, I told people, Yes, I'm. I'm happily and illegally married. Damn the man! <laughs> and, and I got told every once in a while that's the most metal thing you've ever done. <laughs> so, but now and then, you know, when just shortly before the decision came down, uh, my wife and I went to Iowa and got married legally. So now I've been married twice. 
<laughs> one's illegal and one's illegal, and now I'm told that that might, in fact, be the most <laughs> done. So I, you know, I don't know. It's a moving target, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing you said um, in in the previous answer really caught my attention because one of the things that I've been struggling with as I've been doing these podcasts and talking to people about pop music is a lot of people approach pop music and music in general um, from a very political sort of lens. Right. And they always want to say, well, there's this music is important and the study of music is important because it's, it's all about politics. And um, you, you just kind of said, well, metal fans don't really see themselves as being very political. And I thought that was a really interesting comment because I think the critics of heavy metal probably see there's a greater politics there than maybe heavy yes. metal fans do. Does that make any sense? That, that does make sense. And I, I think uh, I, there's, a, there's a lot of obviously mitigating factors in a statement like that. But, but sort of taken you know, as a general rule, let's say, um, heavy metal fans, I think more often than not, do not see themselves as, as political people. I mean, they may have particular things, they would not say causes, particular things that they're interested in. Um, metal fans don't necessarily see them, themselves as political and I think that has a lot to do with the music, first of all, um, because if you call yourself a metal fan, that's that's really not something that you do casually. It's not a casual music, and it's not a casual crowd. So it's not something that you sort of do on the fly. There's a, there's a, a line from a, a film uh, by Sam Dunn that I always thought was pretty funny, and it's Rob Zombie, and he says, nobody ever said they were into Slayer for a summer, right? So... It's not a music that lends itself to sort of casual encounters very well. Um, and I, I think that a lot of that lack of casualness about metal has to do with the fact that the music is so visceral. And the lyrics are visceral, yes, but the sound is a visceral, felt sound. Uh, and so much of heavy metal is about experiencing the sound, about feeling it, hearing it. I've even had people describe it as tasting, that they can taste heavy metal. Um, and that doesn't always lend itself to you know, a political understanding of the music. The other thing is that you'll, you'll hear and see a lot of heavy metal fans say to you that they don't pay attention to the lyrics, that the lyrics aren't important. Uh, and a lot of metal fans subscribe to exactly that that the lyrics are less important than the viscerality of the sound. And a lot of really well-known metal bands right now are bands that may not even have lyrics, where the entire piece is sonic. If you think of of, uh, bands that some folks might know, like Sleep, for instance, or Boris, some of these more sort of experimental metal bands, uh, there aren't even lyrics to hear. Uh, So... I think a lot of anthropologists and ethnomusicologists, people who study pop music, who are studying the political aspects of the music, are looking towards the lyrics as signposts of that politicalness, of that political sort of ethos. Um, in heavy metal, you can't look to the lyrics for political signposting uh, most of the time. Now, there's exceptions to every rule, but I think you really have to think more about heavy metal being, at least the heavy metal community that exists, being about a shared experience more than a shared outlook, more than a shared uh, sort of political philosophy. Um, and, and it makes studying politi- politics and heavy metal 
uh, slippery. Um, I have a good friend that studies, I have several friends actually that study heavy metal in Indonesia, uh, and their work is overtly political because heavy metal in Indonesia is overtly political. Uh, it's seen in, in Indonesia as both wildly popular and potentially dangerous, politically, nationally. So, you know, it, it almost goes back to something I said sort of at the beginning of our talk, and, and that is that heavy metal is at once international and huge in scope and deeply local, deeply community, deeply scene-based. So to say something like heavy metal fans aren't political might work uh, to hit a very large nail on the head, but heavy metal is also deeply implicated in the cultures, communities, and scenes in which it exists. And where there are political uh, systems in play in a particular scene, then the people there are involved in it. So, you know, you have to... Heavy metal is such a tricky one because if you say something in general, then it's extremely general. And if you say something in specific, it's extremely specific. Well, thank you so much for, for taking time today to speak with us. This has been a fantastic uh, conversation. Uh, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I'm editing a second book that's actually a completely different topic. It's on uh, Jazz Age Kansas City. It's on gender and sexuality in Jazz Age Kansas City. It's actually my dissertation uh, that I had set down to do my heavy metal work. So uh, that will be in press this year at Nebraska, at University of Nebraska Press. But I'm also still very much continuing my heavy metal work. I'm, I'm moving into some directions where I'm looking much more closely at the intersection of the leather-identified community and the heavy metal community and where those imbrications are and where they started. And then I'm looking at a particular genre of heavy metal, which is industrial metal. Uh, industrial is well known for being overtly sexual and playing with a whole lot of gendered systems. And it's also well known for not always being seen as entirely metal and not always being seen as entirely electronic music. So it's, it's sort of uh, on the precipice of a whole lot of margins, too. Uh, so that's what I'm working on now. Well, I will look forward to seeing those books. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. Today, I've been talking with Amber Clifford Napoleon, the author of Queerness and Heavy Metal Music, Metal Bent. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening. <laughs>